Well, we are coming to, our, uh, to the end of our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Let me tell you how this is, is going to end, what's going to happen today and next week. Um, last weekend, okay, so, so go back to last weekend. Rob, actually, Rob, Rob stretched us out, didn't he? He took us all the way to Revelation 21, uh, the end of the book, to begin to help us understand and see our future in light of Christ's resurrection, right? I'm actually today, I want you to know, I'm going to take us all the way back out there and I'm going to finish up that, that vision of John that's about our future state. I'll give an overview of it, really. And then next week, uh, Bill is going to come. Um, those of you who are not familiar with fellowship, we, we, we believe in team teaching. And so you know, we actually have four teaching pastors. I'm one of them. And, and then Bill Wellens will come next week and he will take Revelation, uh, and he will review it quickly, and then he will invite us, as we do at, at the end of books, generally, we pause and we say, what have we learned? Uh, how have I been changed, submitted to God's word and his spirit at work in my life? What have I, I learned, and what am I learning? And, and he's going to say this, and I'm going to preview it, but you know, he'll remind us that the book of Revelations, the only book in our Bibles that has a promise at the beginning of blessing. You remember that? Blessed. Is he who reads it, hears it, heeds it? And that blessing is what I want you thinking about in the coming week. Uh, is it, how have you been blessed in our study? Now, when I say that, always remember, uh, it doesn't mean, uh, boy, I got what I wanted. <laughs> That's not the blessing per se, but I can tell you this, it will be God always gets what he wants and gives what is for our good. So it could be, quite frankly, uh, simply, I've gotten perspective in a struggle. I'm still in it, but I'm growing. This is what I've learned of God. This is how God's making me more like Christ. Are you with me? And we're going to invite some of you. And, and here's what I'll say to you. You'll know it. If, if You know what? God's inviting you to share it with the body that we might be built up together. So that's how we will and turning your Bibles to Revelation, but you're going to go all the way to the back end. Our study's been the first three chapters, the seven churches, but kind of grabbing the back end, appropriate for Easter and appropriate, I think, to wrap that up today. Revelation 21, last Sunday, Rob began to walk us through John's vision of what heaven will be like. What is our future eternal state for those in Christ? He said, here's what will be there. Remember this? Here's what won't be there. Here's this amazing promise uh, of living water. And all of it, of course, is ours because of the resurrection of Christ. We've sung about it, and that's what Easter was about, why we even chose that passage. Now, before reading our text for today, and it's a little longer, I, I want you to understand it's absolutely connected to the words to the seven churches. Like we're not, you know, it's the same book, so it's connected, but it's intimately connected with the words to the seven churches. And I want you to see that. Um, look at verse seven, chapter 21. He says, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, you remember that in every letter to every one of the seven churches, there was on the back end of the letter, a promise and it was a promise to who? To the one who overcomes, I will. Same word. We talked about the one who overcomes is the one who's in Christ Jesus because Jesus is our overcomer and we overcome in him based on what he has done. 
And so the, the promises that we're going to see, the realities we're going to see about our future here in Revelation 21 and 22, you see, those are the same promises that were given to the churches in Revelation 1 through 3. And just as they lived in places where they lost hope, they wanted to give up, it was difficult to overcome, Christ gives them these promises to anchor them. And they anchor themselves in this future promise, in this future reality, such that when they can't go on, the promise brings them along. And so these promises are relevant to you and I today because we are people of promise. Now, follow along in your Bibles. Words are not going to be on the screen today. I want you uh, just looking at your text uh, and following with me as I, as I read. Now, I'm going to grab uh, verse 8 and then down, and I'm going to make a few comments as I go because there's so much here, but I, I certainly can't get all of it, but I hope to get those most important things. Start at verse 8. He begins with a negative note. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we'll just note, this is going to come again, that there, there is a heaven, but everyone will not be in heaven according to the vision. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven, the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Here we go. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now this has already been spoken of. Rob read it last week. If you go to chapter 21, verses one through seven, the new heaven, new earth come down. The holy are there. Then the holy city comes down. And now we're gonna get more detail on the holy city. Now what does that remind us of? Remember the book of Genesis. How does the book of Genesis begin? God created, chapter one. And then chapter two, it's like he created again. No, now we're gonna go into more detail of the creation. Isn't that amazing? The first book, the last book, they end in a similar way. So now we go into more detail on the city. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And it had a great, high, great and high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. Is there a number here that's important at all? I think. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles in, in ASB. It's literally 12,000. Again, there's 12 again, stadia. Length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards, actually 144 cubics, what it's in the Greek, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite. 
The eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve, there we go again, gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Notice again, there's a distinction here. There are those there, and there are those who are not there. 22, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side was, side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Uh, This week, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael uh, Spiegel, he's the department chair of theological studies at uh, Dallas Seminary. And uh, he's been in town because we we partner with Dallas and offer a master's degree that some of you, quite frankly, I think are in. And they had their meetings over the weekend. Uh, So I I bumped into him. And by the way, the class they're taking right now is eschatology. Do you know what eschatology is? Eschatology has to do with last things. It has to do with what we just read, you know, how does it all end? Where is it all going? What's it look like? And, and, and I, I bumped into him by chance, quite frankly, but I thought, well, golly, man, I'm sitting here studying this stuff. I've, I've got a question for him, and I want to I ask him this question. And I figured, you know, he would be eminently qualified because the guy's been teaching this, you know, to doctoral students and graduate students for over a decade. And so I said, uh, Dr. Spiegel, um, just let me ask you a question, just curious. When you see students come into your class, uh, what's the primary misconception that they have of heaven? Like, what, what, what are they missing or what do you see they all seem to bring into your class that they don't understand or don't have a clear understanding of? He did not hesitate. He said, and, and I don't got the exact quote, but I tried to remember these, the words as he said it. He said, people have a view of heaven that is ethereal. You know, it's kind of wisp, you know, wispy and hyper-spiritual, like it's some state of dreaminess, lightness, and floating in the air. And they are uncertain about anything beyond that. Now, these are graduate students, Okay, these are people who go to seminary who are pretty astute theologically and spiritually mature. I don't know about you, but I actually get that because my mind can kind of wander 
to that puffy stuff, you know, related to heaven. Maybe yours can as well. But John's vision is actually meant to just blow that out of your mind, this nonsense in a way, and say this is the reality of our future state. And when we understand what John saw, I want to suggest that it's like, you know, go back to Rob's message last week. You remember his kids going up the hill and oh my gosh, we got to motivate them to get there. And then they got there and they got, oh my gosh, we got to go all the way down. Got to motivate them. Okay, we're going up. We're going to look behind a waterfall. Come on, let's go. And then coming down, what was it? You remember? We're going to have the best milkshake on the planet, you know, to get these kids motivated. Well, in the same way you see this promise for us gets us up, gets us down and gets us through. There's so much here. I'm going to do this a little different uh, than, than just verse by verse. I'm, I'm simply going to summarize uh, three realities. You know what? There's, there's infinite realities. I think we can all agree. And there's way more than three in this text. But let me give you three that describe our future hope and certainty. The first is this. One, heaven is a continuation of what we know. I'll repeat these. Heaven is a continuation of what we know. I want you to understand there's a new heaven. Yes, there's a new earth. And when we hear that, the new heaven, new earth, where do we go? We go to Genesis, don't we? In the beginning, God did what? Created what? The heavens and the earth. And there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Our eternity is not gonna be something like utterly unfamiliar to what we have in our present experience. Holy, uh, holy new, yes, holy new. Um, is it gonna be, be holy better? Way better, okay? Is it gonna be utterly unrecognizable? No, no, not at all. See, what was lost in the fall, think of our planet, the earth, what was lost in the fall, it's not like God's gonna say, well, that didn't work, I'm gonna scrap that, and I'm gonna create something called goobledygop, you know, something totally, no, the earth, creation as we know it, it's made holy new. Theologians call, in different applications, call it a concept of continuity and discontinuity. You know, what, what continues as, as, as uh, you know, th- uh, revelation goes on and what's discontinued. When we think of, 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 of end things, there's, there's, yes, there's discontinuity. In other words, there's some cutoffs. There's some things that, you know, we don't make sacrifices anymore. There's discontinuity as revelation progresses. There's discontinuity in the new heaven and the new earth from the old, yes. But there's far more continuity than we tend to, to, to understand and believe. The new heaven, the new earth. Uh, this was, look at here, the, the, the new city of Jerusalem comes down. Listen, uh, it, it, it will be familiar to us. But there will be no sin, no groaning, no pain, no harm, no horror. You know, there's a few of these places, and maybe you've, you certainly may have some in your own mind, but I, I'll never forget the first time in the mid-80s when I stood and I looked at the Yosemite Valley for the first time in my life. I was 26, 27 years old. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's breathtaking. I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I have a couple of times had the privilege of sitting by a river in the Masamara, which is the northern part of the Serengeti in Africa. It's in Kenya. Sitting, eating, 
while real, you know, not trained alligators in the water, elephants on the shore eating, lions in the distance, wildebeest. And it, it just, it takes your breath away. Now I want you in your own mind to get that, that part of the earth that you've seen, you've been there, and, and it just, you had a physical experience. It just, I mean, they're everywhere, but you just felt something amazing. Whatever it is, and even those things I've experienced, I want you to know, it's, it's not like you're going, uh, oh my gosh, look at that in HD, versus this is what TV looked like 10 years ago. It's not that at all. It's what I'm seeing is actually black and white, if I can go that far. And it's a tube TV. That's what we see today. I'm not diminishing how amazing and beautiful it is. But by comparison to what will be, you see, we don't even have the categories. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love them. Y'all, there are, th- there, there are things waiting for us to see. There are, th- there are things wait, you know, that we're gonna hear that quite frankly, we're just not capable of absorbing it and grasping it, grasping it. today. It's, it's like, time of year, it's like trying to smell a fresh baked pie at this time of year for me. I can't do it because my sense of smell is clogged up with allergies. And the reality is that all of us live in bodies where all of our senses are clogged up. I mean, it's amazing what we see, but it's nothing compared to what we will see in a new heaven, in a new earth, in a resurrected body. Heaven is a continuation of creation as we know it. Secondly, heaven is tangible glory. And I use that word intentionally. It's tangible glory. We often speak of glory and it's ethereal and mystical and it's you know, just kind of lightish or whatever. But it, it, heaven is tangible glory. When you read through this, and you can go back through it, I hope you do, and you notice the myriad of, 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 of words, brilliance, luminary, crystal clear, pure like glass, precious, transparent. By the way, gold that's transparent, what's that? I, I, I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't know exactly what gold, you know, it's not the, obviously it's not gold that you have on your ring at some level, but it's some level of transparent. Everything seems to, to emanate, if I could say this, radiance. There's this, this translucent nature, this radiant nature to everything about the new Jerusalem. Now, we wonder, are we, Lord, are we talking about real jewelry? Are we talking about these real stones? Are the measurements, are we talking about, are we talking about a city? By the way, if you've looked in your margin, are we talking about a city that comes down out of heaven that's a hundred, you know, that's a 1,500 miles wide, deep and high? Is that, is that what that thing's coming out? Are these literal measurements? This is a city, by the way, that would stretch from Canada to Mexico, okay, and from Colorado to the Atlantic. So lay that on the map and then go that high. Is this, is this what this is? Now here's where there's room for disagreement. Uh, I'm not gonna be dogmatic because I don't, I quite frankly don't know that we can be dogmatic. 
But I believe, I, I believe as we read this that the, the, the jewels, y'all, the numbers, the measurements, I, I believe they're symbolic. Now, some of you are going, wait, 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 no, they're, this is a, this thing's, there's gonna be a real city this size. Well, could be, okay? I, I, I believe it's symbolic language. Uh, the, the repetition of the 12, for example. Now, we know throughout the Bible... You know, don't go crazy on numbers, but, but numbers do have meaning in the Bible. You can't throw it out and say, no, when it says 12, it means literal 12. Well, not always. 12 is, 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 has been certainly, we would say, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. We're talking about the people of God when we say the number 12, quite frankly. It's a beautiful picture here because what? There's the, there are the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles and it's all one city. That's amazing, isn't it? With a, you know, is, there's a distinction, Israel and the church, but in heaven that we're together, it's amazing. Even when you read the text, you know, the New American Standard says, um, and he measured the city with its rod 1,500 miles. Well, that's not what the Greek says. So you gotta go back and the, Greeks, the Greek says 12 gates, 12 this, 12 this, 12 this. And then it says 12,000 stadia. So you gotta go, he's using 12 for a reason. And he goes 144 cubics, not 74 yards. It's 12 by 12. So 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. What's, I think, symbolic of the, it's, it's the completeness of God's people. It's all God's people. Now, lest some of you are panicking because you're going to go, oh my gosh, has Lloyd abandoned the you know, grammatical, literal, historical hermeneutic, how we study the Bible? No, no. Let me tell you something. When something's a symbol, it's a dadgum symbol. You don't take it literally when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And you look over there for the four-legged beast. What do we do? We go, he meant he's a lamb as in the lamb that's sacrificed. You read Revelation. Don't draw any pictures of this stuff because it's crazy. And you don't picture, you know, half a body of a lamb and half a body of a lion and get all creeped out because that's, that's not what's going on. It's symbolic. And when it's literal, what is it? It's literal. Well, this is symbolic, I believe. Now, I do believe that the numbers are, you know, they're, the stones, they're, they're real walls. The city itself is real in the sense that, look, this is what John saw. You're just going to describe what he saw, and he really saw these things. But they, what do they do? They point to a greater reality. D.A. Carson, I, I listened to him recently, and he, he, he speaks of a, his sister, when she worked with this pre-Stone Age tribe, his sister was a missionary for many years, pre-Stone Age tribe, and uh, they, she worked with them and uh, for many years, translation, et cetera, but, but he, he talked about this example. I thought it, worked, it, it, it beautifully illustrates this. Can you imagine, you know, pre-Stone Age means they didn't yet use, uh, you know, arrowheads. They just, you know, the tips of their spears were harder wood. They hadn't got technically savvy yet, you know, the rock's harder. We're talking way back. But can you imagine, you get to know these people, you get to understand their language, and then you, 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 um, you're trying to explain to them electricity. Electricity, because it's real. And, and, and so you, could you do that? You know, electricity, by, you could go, electricity is a type of energy. It can build up in one place and stay, or it can be transferred and, and it can move. And it, it has to do with the edges of atoms. You see, in atoms, there's negative and positive, and when ne- atoms rub together, the negative and, and positive, they get charged. And atoms, by the way, are whatever. I mean, what are you, what are you saying to them? Nothing. <laughs> you're saying nothing. You're saying truth and everything, but you're saying nothing. I mean, what, what, what's in their world that you could grab that might explain electricity? I, yeah, I have no idea. 
What about lightning? You're with them, you know, and suddenly lightning goes. You go, electricity. And you say, that's electricity. And what do you do then? What do you have to, how do you describe this? Oh, the, you know, man takes that lightning and puts it in a box. And the box doesn't melt. And then it, it moves along vines that are on trees with no leaves. And it goes to your hut and it comes out a tiny snake in the wall. And then it comes to this round orb and a piece of the lightning lights up your room. Are you, what, are you kidding me? You know, they, don't, they have no idea. Now you tell me. You use language you have and describe heavenly realities. I mean, I got nothing. Now, lest we say that what John's describing them makes no sense, we can't get it. God himself has determined that these images and these words are adequate for us to know what it's going to be like to what degree we need to know now. It's enough. And I'm going to tell you, when they read this, they knew what a city was. They knew what a wall was. They knew what gold. You see, it's all things they knew pointing to a greater reality. What's clear to them, and I think can be clear to us, no pun intended, is the brilliance of this city. It's like there's no place in the city you can go where light is not going to be refracted and, and come at you in a different way to reveal what? To reveal God's glory. To reveal what God is like, his infinite glory that we sing a few little songs about and kind of touch on the edges of it but you see heaven will be glory tangible every piece of it every inch of it screaming showing God's glory in all and every way and now think about this what was God's intention from the very beginning in the beginning God created the heaven and what's his intention in the very beginning go back to our study of Abraham do you remember a people of God in the place of God, with access to the presence of God. This is his intention, original, and it will be fulfilled. And listen, when it's fulfilled in its fullness and entirety, heaven, then God's glory is unleashed, you see, in ways that we we can hardly comprehend today. Oh, but we can get a picture because he's given us this picture. Heaven is a continuation of creation as we know it. Heaven is tangible glory. And then last, let me say this, heaven is to be with God. Boy, you talk about an understatement, but a fact. Heaven is to be with God. You know, you cannot read this description that we've read You can't read chapter 21, 22 and not miss that um, if you boiled it down to its irreducible minimum. In other words, there's all kinds of stuff and it's there, but this is the core. This is the essence. I think we would agree it's relational. It's relational closeness. It's relational intimacy. It's withness that we are with God in this place forever. The city is not just a structure, right? And this is where you got apocalyptic literature that does some crazy things with images and words. But you go, what's well, a city? No, it's not. It's a bride. I thought it was a city. What's a bride? <laughs> what is? It's both, you see. It's a people. And it's the bride of 
Christ. Now you got all these New Testament images coming back to us from Ephesians, right? Of the prepared that we, the church, are the bride prepared for Christ, pure and holy. It's relational intimacy and closeness. And, and there's a reason he chooses bride, y'all. It, there's no more deeper or intimate relationship on the planet. Now, I don't mean to be silly on this. You know, in our marriages, let's be honest. They're okay. They're awesome. They're terrible. <laughs> you know, it, but, but God's not ashamed to take marriage and say, no, this is the image I want to use. Describe what the future will be and the intimacy you will have with me if you are in Christ Jesus. Go from the Old Testament, go all the way to the New, and it's God saying, I'm the, the groom and my people are the bride, you know. Relational intimacy with God. You know, uh, it seems there's two, two pictures at least, and there's more, but I want to draw your attention to two things in the text that I think anchor this reality. 21.16, the city laid out as a square, its length as great as its width, and he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia, high, wide, long. It would not be lost, and it's, I don't think it's lost on us, I hope, but it would not be lost on them that what is described here is a cube. I mean, a cube like no cube you've ever seen, quite frankly. Can you, know, can you imagine a structure like this? 1500, we'll use miles, uh, miles, 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles. Okay, a cube. There's only one other cube in the Bible. What is it? There's only one other cubed structure in the whole Bible. What is it? Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. So God, when he's entering relationship with his people, he has them build the tabernacle. I'll do it this way. It's a rectangle, right? It's a tabernacle. It was a rectangle. But you know, within the rectangle, there was what? There was a squared cube. Same length, same width, same height. It was a cube. And it was the Holy of Holies. And this is where God was. And man, you don't go in there without the proper credentials, right? One priest, one time a year, or you die. But it does, God gets no more present or close than the Holy of Holies. Now, get this in your mind's eye. Heaven, the whole place, is the Holy of Holies. That's what they saw. That's when they read it. I don't think they're going, ooh, there's a city that has an elevator that goes 1,500 miles high. no. It's the holy of holies in gargantuan, you know, size because there's room for all. It's amazing. It blows our mind. But this is where God is. And now you understand in heaven we live and breathe and have our being within God. It's crazy. We're, I don't know, I don't have words for it. The whole thing's the holy of holies and we're there forever. And there's no mediator. There's no temple. Why would we need a temple? Where are, I'm already in the Holy of Holies. I don't need a mediator. Jesus was my mediator. And now I'm with God. Oh my gosh. 
Secondly, 22.4. Look at 22.4. And they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. You remember Exodus 33? Moses says, show me your face. Show me. I want to see you. And you remember God's response to Moses? You cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. That's why John would write in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. In our, in our fallenness, y'all, we can't, uh, you know, you, you, if you see him, you, you, you're gone. What is it about seeing someone's face? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, not just seeing them, but seeing their face. I'm looking at everyone's face right now. I'm not looking at your shoulder. I'm not looking at your knee. What a knee, you know. I'm, we're... we're what do we do? We, we're look at our, we look at that face. What is it? What is that? Have you ever, have you ever felt the, I, I'm going to call it, I think it actually sounded guilt or shame or kind of nauseating feeling when you, when you try and bring up someone's face that you love and you can't? Do you ever have that feeling? And it just turns you, you go, well, it's, I don't know, it's your mom. It's your, you know what I'm saying? But you can't get their face. And you just feel this, it's almost like you've lost them. It's rare in our day, but do you do know, maybe, you know, I've never seen one, but what was the, what was the high point of, of a wedding for a lot of years? Was it the bride coming down the aisle? Was it the kiss? What was it? To lift the veil and show her face. Hmm. I, you know, I, um, when, when my son Darden had his motorcycle accident, and by the way, he's, he's, doing, he's doing better. I've got him back in Knoxville. He's, uh, he's still in a wheelchair. But he's, you know, again, I said it before, it's orthopedic injuries, primarily muscular. He'll have more surgeries, but, but he, will, he will recover. But I'm going to tell you something. When I got that call, okay, and I'm, I'm driving to Knoxville not knowing uh, but he's in a trauma unit there. I was not thinking about seeing his knee or his broken leg. What did I want to see? And I'm going to tell you, I, I could still see, when I walked in the emergency room, let me tell you, his whole body was covered in a sheet, but not his face. <laughs> so I went, where did I go immediately? To his face. That was enough. Y'all, in a way that I cannot comprehend, we will see the face of God. We can't see it now because it would kill us. But when we see it then, Quite frankly, I think all the questions we talk about kind of arrogantly, I'm going to ask God about this. I'm going to ask God this when I get there. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I really don't know. I don't, I don't think so. He's going to see his face and live. 
Heaven's a continuation of creation as we know it. It's, it's very tangible glory. It's real, y'all. It's earthy. Come on. It's, 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 uh, it's got stuff, man, that's real. Dirt, and I believe, trees and creation as we know it. All, all of the creation as we know it. It's tangible glory. You can't move about it and, and not refract and reflect the glory of God. And it's to be with God in ways that we can scarcely get our our minds and hearts around but so what so what that's our future well i'd say this i doubt there's a person in the room that is not walking in some challenge right now there's just not some hardship some difficulty across the gamut and it's hard to go on sometimes to keep trusting in the midst of the circumstances Let me remind you, the seven churches of Revelation 1 to 3, they were in a tough spot. And so Jesus, they read the whole book. They got to the end that we're reading, trust me. And they saw their future. Not some wispy, ethereal float around but a material, physical, tangible place of unending wonder where you're, you've got responsibility and accountability and creativity and discovery and exp- all the things we do on the planet, you know, that bring joy. We're just going to do it infinitely and beyond and in ways we can't imagine. This is our future. And wherever you're at, I invite you. To anchor yourself in that future, even while you sit in your present. Because when Jesus says this in 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. This is a little technical, but let me say it. He uses the present tense as a future present of absolute certainty. What does that gobbledygook mean? It means this. It means it is so certain that he will speak of it to John in that day as if it's already happening. Because it's, it is happening because it's so certain. And wherever you're at and whatever you're holding, facing, standing in, you can believe that even now in that, Jesus is making it new. Would you pray with me? And in this moment, would you pray? I'll let you pray. And ask God that he might by his spirit and his word, let's, and his word to us, make heaven's reality our own right now. Would you ask God for that for you? Father, thank you for your word, this vision to John that gives us all that we need right now to know of our future eternity with you in Christ Jesus. May its realness invade our minds and hearts in such a way that we don't hold to a wispy, 
future. But to hard realities that are ours. And that are for our good and your glory. To an infinite degree. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and I will send you out with a reminder of what Abraham saw. You know, remember our study through Abraham and man, he's trudging through the desert and all that craziness. And we forget, you know, we don't, you don't get it in Genesis, but we certainly get it in Hebrews. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He lived here, but he was living for this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, thousands of years before John penned the vision live for that city. So may we. God bless.